Thank you, Diana, for sharing that. The words of the poem you just heard from George Moses Horton were not triumphant words. They were not celebratory words. They were not words reflecting on a long time past. As you heard, George Moses Horton wrote those words while he was still a slave in the 1830s. Born into slavery at the turn of the century, George Moses Horton would spend the majority of his life in North Carolina working on a tobacco farm. He was separated from his family in his early 20s, and nothing is really known about that family he was separated from, and even his eventual wife and two children. The legacy of George Moses Horton returns to the poem you just heard. It's worth repeating and reflecting on. He wrote that poem and two, three entire collections, but two entire collections uh, that were published while he was still a slave. Not only that, but he was the first African-American to be published in the United States. Now, some students of history go, well, what about Phyllis Wheatley and her book of poetry? Wasn't she the first? True. But when she went to get it published, she had to go to England because the United States still would not publish her work. So for George Moses Horton, he was the first to be published by an American publishing house. He was the first enslaved American to be published, the first enslaved person to openly protest their enslavement in poetry, and also the first published author in North Carolina, North Carolina history, black or white. Horton taught himself to read by perusing children's books, reading the Bible, and newspaper articles. Liberal Episcopalians taught him to write when it was still legal in North Carolina. And his first volume of poetry was funded by the soon-to-be former mayor of Washington, D.C., Joseph Gales, Jr., an abolitionist Unitarian. The book was published with the hopes of raising enough money so Horton could buy his own freedom. Sadly, it did not earn enough. And George Moses Horton would not see freedom until Union soldiers arrived 35 years later. Horton was in his mid-60s when Union soldiers finally came to North Carolina, the words of the Emancipation Proclamation. After that, he moved to Philadelphia, and two years into his freedom, he emigrated to the newly formed colony of Liberia. Some accounts say he died barely a year after moving to Liberia. Some rumors suggest he moved back to Philadelphia. Others say he died several years afterward. What remains true is that once he left for Liberia, the rest of his life escaped history. And he died a free man, mostly unnoticed by the world. This being Black History Month, today is about Black history. But I feel I must name what is often, uh, just to get it out there, a frenetic energy amongst progressives during this month. There's a whirlwind of biographies, books, and documentaries. Black history isn't just about February, right? This month is supposed to inspire us to recognize Black history as a part of everyday American history. And I feel that is especially important and worth repeating with the politicization of critical race theory and, well, any history of racism and slavery in America. Curricula are being rewritten. And the troubling past of the United States is being minimized. And so it's important, yes, to this month, but yes, to every day afterward. 
Now, I don't know about you, but the one thing I don't hear much about every February is black theology, especially in Unitarian Universalist circles. Now, you can come to your own conclusions as to why, but I think it might have to do with a person that has the initials JC. And so that's where we're headed today, black theology. Just a quick snapshot. For today, we launch from the snapshot of George Moses Horton's life into the world of black interpretations of Christianity. And next week, we'll look at black humanism and religious naturalism. Both are important, and both have far more to say to us than simply being a recap of history or theological principles. As we are a community striving for the beloved community, this is about the ongoing work of liberation in our communities, yes, but in the wider world. And for us to engage Black history, we need to engage the narratives not just of this moment, but the narratives that have informed this moment. And this includes Black expressions of Christianity. It includes the poetry of Horton that we heard. It includes the history of slavery and so on and so forth. And we also learned something about ourselves in this moment as Unitarian Universalists. Many of the songs we sing today as you use began as ring shouts in Black communities, as work songs and a balm for aching souls. Black theology is not just Black theology. It runs deep in American religious history. But perhaps this will also inspire us to dig deep into the wide world of theology that our tradition holds as well. The Black church and Black non-theistic movements are a part of who we are. It's often a history we don't talk about, but it is a part of who we are. But for today, I want to begin with the New Testament. Now, don't run away. Because when we think about theology, well, what is theology, right? It's everything that we sing, we say, we read, we do. It's not just when I was in college studying theology, being locked in the library, trying to translate old editions of Karl Barth's church dogmatics. Oh my goodness. It is that too, but it is so much more than that. It is us gathering here. It is what we do, what we sing, what we say. It's everything. And for Christian communities, it's the New Testament. And so we begin with a book of the New Testament. You can't separate African-American Christian expression from the liberation narratives of the Bible. But the book we're beginning with is not really a book. It's a letter. And it's not even really a letter. It's a quick note. It might as well be a post-it note almost. It's Paul's letter to Philemon. Now, first, a quick word on the Bible. Since many UUs come from traditions where the Bible was used as a weapon or we've seen how it's used as a weapon, I think this needs to be said as we continue to reclaim and heal. I'm reminded always of the words of the late Rachel Held Evans and to paraphrase her, if you go to the Bible looking to harm people, you will find tools to harm. If you go looking to love people, you'll find the tools for love. And for our purposes today, if you go looking for liberation, it's there. This is true of our own tradition as well. Our principles can be used to divide people. I've seen it, you may have seen it, but they can also be used to heal, to inspire, and to love. Principles, commandments, Bibles are words on paper, but what matters is how we approach them and what our intent is in approaching them. And so back to Philemon, a quick 25 verses. 
And I'll just give you a few of them right now. Now, this is interesting because I feel this is relevant today too. The translation I'm using is called the First Nations Version. It's a translation written for and by indigenous peoples in this continent. And there's some really fascinating things happening in communities of color who are looking at, say, scriptures that used to be used to harm them or oppress them and reclaiming them and doing what they call decolonizing them and even rewriting them, which is just wonderful, right? And so here is just a few verses from this, from the First Nations version from Paul. <laughs> when I send my voice to the great spirit, I always remember to thank him for you. For I keep hearing about the trust you have toward the honored one and to all the holy ones. I pray that you share with others the trust you have in the chosen one, your understanding of all the good things that we have that will keep growing deeper and stronger, the love that you have shown toward others, my much-loved spiritual brothers and sisters. I have the freedom in the chosen one to boldly order you to do the right thing, but instead, I'm asking for your help on the basis of love. I, Paul, your elder, who is a prisoner because of the chosen one, I call on you for the sake of Onesimus, my spiritual child, to whom I have become a spiritual father while in prison. In the past, he was not helpful to you, but he has now become helpful to both you and me. I am now sending him back to you, and with him I send my own heart. I would have liked to keep him here with me so that while I am prison for telling the good story, he would take your place in serving me. But I do not want to do anything unless you agree to it. In this way, you will help me willingly and not because you think you must. It may be that he was taken away from you for a little while so that he could remain with you from now on. Treat him not as a slave, but as more than your slave. Treat him as a much loved spiritual brother. If he is loved by me in this way, he should be loved by all the more by you. He should be loved all, both as a human being and, and, and as the ones of our chosen one. And so if you think of me as a fellow traveler on the good road, then welcome him the same way you would welcome me. I write this letter to you knowing that you will do what I have asked you to do and so much more. Also, prepare a guest room and make it ready for me. I hope through your prayers, I will be given back to you. There's, of course, more to this. But let's recap it real quick. <laughs> you might have picked up on some fun things in there. Paul is writing from Ephesus in prison to a man named Philemon, also his sister, Apphia, and to a house church that met in Philemon's home. That last bit is interesting because while this letter is intended for an entire church, it's mostly addressed to Philemon. But here's the point of importance. Paul is with someone in prison that Philemon knows, a man named Onesimus. And by all accounts, it appears that Onesimus is a runaway slave. And Paul is writing to Philemon about Onesimus' return. Paul advocates for Onesimus to return no longer as a slave, but as a brother. Someone to love just as Paul loves him. Now, I love, I love these parts. Any old religious literature is great for this. Paul has some interesting little jabs to Philemon and guilt trips going on. 
to the effect of, instead of telling you what to do, Philemon, I trust you're going to do the right thing. And then he concludes with, by the way, my imprisonment will not last. Prepare a room for me. I'm coming to check in on you to see if you did what I asked you to do. Now, there's other things of note in this little, little letter. This very short letter is filled with things to wonder about. And enslaved communities in our country would hear this letter and wonder for themselves. Even as white preachers insisted, this letter protected slavery. And here's where we take a turn. The letter to Philemon, while many of us in 2022 could read it, include, yes, it's about a freeing a slave. And yes, for oppressed and enslaved communities, it was about liberation. But for those in power and those who would subjugate people then and now, this letter was used as a means to control. In the United States, during slavery, we had something called the Pauline Mandate. It was a political and theological mandate that justified slavery in this country. And it comes directly from that short 25-verse letter to Philemon. Now, at this point, we could all just... (laughs) We could just be like, okay, let's just take a deep breath and wrestle with the fact that two entirely different communities, those in power and those who are enslaved, could come to different conclusions about the same short text. That speaks volumes alone. It also shows us that religion is malleable for evil or for good for all of the in-between. I don't think you need any more proof than that. What this becomes is not a deep dive into Christianity or the Apostle Paul, right? But instead, for us in 2022 and for all who are advocating for and seeking liberation, this becomes an ethic, a way of orienting our lives. Remember what I paraphrased from Rachel Held Evans, right? Go to the text looking to oppress, you'll find the tools. Go to the text looking for love, you'll find the tools. The late African-American biblical scholar, James Knoll, read the letter to Philemon and saw more than just two sides to it. He didn't just see a defense of slavery and an abolitionist message competing for airtime, though he did prefer the abolitionist message. Instead, he saw a narrative that challenged the very bedrock of society. Oppressed communities don't need to do anything to see that in Paul's words, Knoll would assert. Because when you are oppressed, you know very well what you're up against, not just personally, but societally. And everything, including your spirituality and the tools of your spirituality, and in the case of Christianity, that's the Bible, everything becomes a means to confront injustice. And that's not to say those of us who are privileged in many areas of life cannot understand. But what it does mean is that we need to allow ourselves maybe just a little bit, to be liberated by a text or a story or an experience. Has that ever been asked in a modern UU church? Can we be liberated by a letter from the Apostle Paul? Oh my goodness, (laughs) I shouldn't have completed that thought. Now this might be all veering toward a theology class, but, but here's where it gets real for us and for everyone. Black interpretations of Paul's letter to Philemon open that letter up into a commentary on power, empire, and what it means to be a religious community. And those commentaries don't solve everything. They instead ask harder questions than whether or not the letter to Philemon is pro or anti-slavery. Dr. Knoll wonders how a Southern slave owner would react if the Apostle Paul were 
poured it into the 19th century. It was now a 19th century gentleman. And he gave this letter to an escaped slave and sent them home. Would that slave owner be as challenged as we assume Philemon is in reading a 2000 year old text? My gut reaction, absolutely not. The letter would have been ripped up. And Noel comes to that conclusion as well. And we can sit in judgment of history with thought experiments like this all day, but Noel, Dr. Noel asks us to move on. He asks us instead to consider what is possible in our communities today with this letter in mind. What is the world we want to live in is the broadest question we can ask, right? But you can keep narrowing it down. What is the church we want to be a part of? What is the community we want to live in? What is the neighborhood we want to be a part of? What's the family we want to engage in and be a part of? In much of African-American Christianity, there is a continued narrative that sings and prays for freedom because that is the world that is still hoped for. Just as our own eight principles are a vision of a world we do not yet inhabit fully, the story of the Exodus, of Jesus of Nazareth, of Paul and Onesimus, those stories speak to communities far and wide of a world yet to be realized. Theologians like Noel and his colleague Matthew V. Johnson see this short, simple letter from Paul as a deep hope for a community yet to come. They even go as far to say Onesimus is still journeying home and we've yet to hear his thoughts in the matter. One day, perhaps, Onesimus will speak. And so what do we sing and pray for as Unitarian Universalists? What is our journey toward and into liberation? What would that even look like for us? Does that journey include Paul's letter to Philemon? Probably not as much for us as for other communities, but it does include our own shared history as you use our own stories of liberation and continued liberating, and we have them. It's interesting. I've seen a phrase thrown around about Unitarian Universalist circles that is growing in popularity lately. We are a liberatory faith, as in we liberate and are liberated. You do what you need to do with that distinction, but I think it's fascinating to hear that enter national discourse, national commentary. To see that more in our published, you know, in our newsletters, in our magazines, and everything that's being published, to see more and more of that. And if you, if you take a look, you'll see it. You'll see it there. And I do wonder, I find myself looking to where the energy of Unitarian Universalism is headed. How we are getting swept up in our own drive to challenge the way things are done and to join with marginalized communities in the ongoing work of liberation. I see it in our adoption of the eighth principle here, the commitment this church made. And the slow, and that's not a critique, the slow implementation of it in our community. You wouldn't want to rush through something like that. I see it in our engaging build, building a united interfaith Lexington through direct action, of becoming the interfaith element of this citywide, countywide organization, and finding common ground amidst our differences. I see it in much of what we do, being liberatory, liberating, and liberated. In writing on behalf of Onesimus, Paul says that he is asking on the basis of love for Philemon to receive this former slave as a brother, to upend the oppressions of the time, to challenge the Roman Empire, where slavery was a, just a fact. It was just there. It's what you did. All on the basis of love. A love that tears down barriers 
and unites. And that is the true learning here. That is what oppressed communities have seen and heard in the story. We are in a time where division and hatred are pretty easy. There's a lot of people I would love to hate on right now. But when love is at the center of our hopes and aspirations, turning the entire world on its head is nothing to fear if it means building the beloved community. And that's where this interpretation of this little-known, often-ignored 25-verse letter takes us in a new way. I believe Martin Luther said that the letter to Philemon was empty of any theological insight and should be ripped out and burned. For a large body of African-American religious scholars, it's not just about whether or not this letter is about slavery. It's about imagining a new way of being, a new way of community, a new way that is anchored in love. That though oppressions and injustices in our world may continue, and right now are continuing, we need to reorient ourselves toward love, toward claiming that new way of envisioning the world and not getting lost in the weeds. That is what George Moses Horton did with his life. He didn't ask his slave owners or white elites if it was okay for him to put his desires for freedom into verse, into poetry. He claimed that right, that inherent right, knowing the risks to his life, because he believed in a world where freedom was possible where freedom must be proclaimed, not just for himself, but for everyone. And that is our call here. This is what we can learn from Black Christian theology. The narratives of liberation and freedom are sung today still because our world is not yet where our highest hopes want us to be, not yet where the cry of the oppressed is calling us. So that is our call. Whether or not we identify with Christian theology, Black Christian theology, this theology, that theology, we're atheist, agnostic, whatever we might be, Buddhist, Throw a, throw a label into the mix. But if we approach it and root it and anchor ourselves on the basis of love, imagine what is possible. Imagine the songs that we would sing. Imagine how we would unite with others on common ground despite our differences. Imagine what is possible in that. So that's the letter of Philemon. On the basis of love, we are called to do the work of justice, to remind ourselves of love, and to be a people of love. May it be so. Amen.